This week, I'm thinking about economic growth, or rather, lack of economic growth. Why don't we see the world's economy powering forward, charging up new inventions, new technologies, suddenly making us more productive? Why do we feel like the world is stuck? One of the answers might be found not by looking around at emerging economies, not by looking at some of the technologies bubbling up, but by looking back in time. Looking back specifically at the Roman Empire. Like everyone who was made to read a few chapters of Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, I've long been fascinated about what held the Romans back. Why didn't they industrialise? Why did they stop growing? Why did they decline and fall? I've just finished reading Peter Temin's book, The Roman Market Economy. Kind of a dusty title, I know. But Peter Temin is not an ancient historian. He's actually an ancient economist. That is a little mean. He's in his late 70s, and he's actually an emeritus professor at MIT. But what he's interested in is bringing modern economic concepts to the study of the ancient world. Temin shows us that Rome had a very sophisticated economy, but it was limited by finite resources. Population was tied to the calories provided by agriculture. The odd technology advance raised the bar a little, but essentially the birth rates went up and living standards went down. And then you get either famine or war, postponed marriages, until the death rate falls back into line and the system stabilizes. This is what economists call a Malthusian economy after the famous demographer Thomas Malthus. It's a pretty depressing world. Basically, there's only a finite amount of stuff. If you have a certain amount of people and they get more of them, then there's less stuff to go around. This is not a very optimistic view of global economics. So under that system, for an economy like the Roman Empire, the surpluses allow urbanization. They allow the growth of the incredible city of Rome, right at the heart of the empire, with feasts, Roman baths, chariot races, aqueducts, but also with laws and law courts and money and taxes. But is the world of Rome that simple and straightforward? Is it that Malthusian and dark? Some economists don't think so. Here's Cambridge's Victoria Bateman. Modern-day economists argue that the reason why economies were poor in the past was that absolutist monarchs undermined property rights, reneging on debt, forcibly extracting wealth from minority groups, and that the state too heavily regulated the economy, including granting monopoly privileges to guilds and international trading companies, all of which limited the incentives and ability of people to buy and sell goods freely. The result was that people lacked the incentive to produce, invest and invent, and economic growth was thereby hampered. So that's one of the arguments as to why there was no Roman industrialization. Because basically Roman emperors just took, 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 redistributed stuff, and nobody had any motivation to go out and create productive economic goods. We can see a little bit of this happening in Rome. So here's a review of another book uh, that's come out recently on their economy by Peter Bang, and it's called The Roman Bazaar. Why does he use the word bazaar and not market? Well, Bang kind of thinks that Rome is a little bit more like the Mughal Empire, and that when we look back in time and compare markets, we're thinking of the wrong comparison. Bang says, with credible examples, the exorbitant amount of local duties and imperial taxes likely tripled the prices of goods in long-distance trade at their ultimate destination. 
This discussion not only sheds more light on the high degree of tax extraction by governing elites and the resulting incentive alignment between those elites and abusive tax collectors, it also suggests that the link between the increase of trade since the late Roman Republic and the supposedly more favourable political environment, the Pax Romana, might be more tenuous than we thought. More likely, the dominant cause for the increase in trade was simply the increase in demand and purchasing power by wealthy elites in Rome. Now, OK, that's a little complicated and a little dusty. But basically, what it's saying is that trade went up to service wealthy people in Rome. So they wanted more luxuries, more luxuries came in. Again, not necessarily a super healthy economy. This discussion, by the way, is very recent. Temin only wrote his book back in 2013. And it sparked a lot of interest, particularly by young economic historians. One of those is Mark Koyama. Koyama says, in seeking to better understand the Roman economy, a lot of historians have asked whether it was comparable to that of Europe in the period 1500 to 1700, which, by the way, is just before the Industrial Revolution. Peter Bang persuasively argues that early modern Europe is not a good analogy for the Roman economy, at least in terms of its institutions. He notes that early modern Europe was fundamentally different from the Roman Empire because it was characterised by intense interstate competition. That is to say, the Europeans spent all their time fighting each other. This competition led to states seeking more and more financial resources as their tax revenues couldn't keep pace with their spending needs. To obtain these financial resources, they needed to make alliances with merchants, bankers and urban economic elites. So you can start to see how understanding where Rome is helps us more to understand where we are now. And one of the ways of understanding where Rome is is that it's not like the run-up to the modern industrial age. Something different is going on. But is that something different, this dark Malthusian world where basically there's only so many calories to go around and only so much stuff, and on top of that, people are fighting desperately for resources. But they somehow manage to produce aqueducts and viaducts and coliseums and all that great stuff that we see when we go and visit Rome. One economist who has a different explanation is at Peking University, Lei-Min Wu. He's got a very different approach to what's going on in old economies, but it also gives us a sense of what might be motivating people right now. Here's his model. And again, bear with the slightly dusty economic terms. This comes straight out of one of his academic pieces. Lee Min Wu says, Selection of group characters, including culture and technology, takes place by migration and war. That's a pretty grim view, isn't it? But it sounds realistic. Since living standards rise with the relative productivity of surplus, migrants and invaders are attracted from places relatively rich in subsistence to those relatively rich in surplus. What does he mean, by the way, by relatively rich in subsistence? It's a nice way of saying getting by. You know, hunter-gatherers, nomads, that kind of stuff. They spread the culture and technology of their subsistence-rich hometown to the surplus-rich destination. The bias of migration favours the spread of subsistence over that of surplus. So in other words, a lot of people, if you're a... <clears throat> so in other words, a lot of people bring their customs and way of doing things to the nice urban environment that's surplus-rich. Okay, so we know, for example, that the Visigoths, when they came to Rome, liked to do their hair with rancid butter. Now, this is probably a bit smelly, and the Romans probably didn't like it. But they're bringing their kind of culture and their technology into Rome. 
So the bias of migration, as he says, favours the spread of subsistence over that of surplus. Even if surplus cultures and technologies develop faster than subsistence in a local environment, the offsetting force of biased migration balances the two sectors on a global scale. This explains the constancy of living standards. So let's unpack that a little bit for you. What he's basically saying is that the reason everything equals out in the end is because the people who have a lot of surplus, the guys who are living it up in towns with pottery and poetry and all the nice things of civilization, come to the attention of the godless barbarians who eventually come in and gobble up their beautiful towns. On the other hand, when you've got lots of barbarians who are living uh, at the edge of subsistence, the very organized towns can arm legionaries like the Romans did and go out and conquer them. So you have, on the one hand, some of these towns going out, conquering, creating great empires. Then the empire suddenly becomes too attractive and you have all these barbarians, other folks coming back in. And this goes on and on in history. And it's a little bit of culture swapping, a little bit of technology swapping, but it effectively keeps everyone on a kind of baseline of miserable. So the latest article by Lee Min Wu, written with a number of other economists, is called Entertaining Malthus, Bread Circuses and Economic Growth. If you haven't heard the phrase bread and circuses, it's a classic term from Rome about what life was like for the urban mob. They were given a free handout of bread and they were given plenty of entertainment in chariot racing to keep them occupied. So the million or so people living in Rome, not all of them were senators and uh, Caesars. Most of them were people who were getting a handout of a loaf and a ticket to watch a chariot race. So this is bread and circuses and Lee Min Wu explains this theory like this. He says, improvements in bread technology will largely result in population growth. Bread technology, he means farming, agriculture, you name it. Anything that gets more stuff out of the ground feeds more people for less. Improvements in circus technology, circus technology, all the luxury stuff that makes life worth living, you know, the things that make people want to go to live in cities, even though the air is bad, even though there's traffic noise, even though it's kind of not as good for you necessarily as living out in the pure, clean air of the countryside. He says improvements in circus technology will result in growth in per capita GDP. So what we've seen, if you like, in our past 250 years of the Industrial Revolution is we've seen improvements both in bread technology. Farming's got more efficient. There's been an agricultural revolution. You know, we used to need something like 90% of people on the farms to create enough food to feed our cities. Now we need something like 2% in the developed world. And we've seen improvements in what he calls circus technology. And by that, we're thinking about everything from music hall to theater, to TV, to internet, to Facebook, to you name it. So where does this leave us? Are we at a position now where we've reached another bump in the road? We've gotten to a place rather like the Romans. The Romans had warm, heated toilets. They had baths. They had beautiful buildings. And yet their economy stopped. And once it stopped, it started to become vulnerable and it stepped back. Are we in a similar position with growth? It's all been based in the last 250 years around exploitation of carbon-based energy. We've used all this great resource up. Have we actually got to a position where we've run out of growth? Well, if you don't want to end this podcast too depressed, another book that's just come out on this theme is by Joel Mokir. It's called A Culture of Growth. And it's all about why early Europe is different to ancient Rome. 
and what made it so interesting and exciting a place. And he actually says something quite interesting, which is the Roman Empire was a kind of big unitary uh, structure. You were a Roman citizen, whether you were in Palestine uh, or whether you were in ancient Gaul or whether you were in Britannia. That's not true of Europe in the early modern period. It's full of little states with dukes and counts and all sorts of people all warring each other. So there's a very good review by Diane Coyle, who's a professor of economics at Manchester University, of Joel's book. Mocha says, Technological advance in the period of the Industrial Revolution was a minority affair. Most entrepreneurs and industrialists of the time were not like Matthew Bolton or Josiah Wedgwood and had little knowledge of or interest in science or even innovation. But the dynamics of competition in a market economy are such that in the long run, the few drag along the many. So Mocker is basically saying that this very competitive market economy that existed in Europe dragged up innovation and growth. I should say he's a minority view amongst economic historians. Not everyone agrees with him. And it's a new idea that he's putting out. Diane Coyle, who's a professor of economics at Manchester University in England, reviewed his book recently. And she says, the debate about the causes of the Industrial Revolution has been revived by contemporary anxieties over stagnation. That's what we were talking about at the beginning, about ancient Rome. Given the flatlining of productivity in OECD countries for nearly a decade, has the West gone X growth? There's no shortage of brilliant new scientists, so technologists find it hard to understand why many economists are gloomy about the prospects for rising living standards. In this book, Mocha points us towards wider cultural questions. What are the forces sending the idea of progress into retreat? Is the ultimate source of secular stagnation the deterioration of the public sphere? If so, given how hard it is to change the cultural environment, the pessimists may be right. So before we go, let's just come back and think about where we started from. The Roman Empire, this amazing unitary organisation of people that led to probably the greatest city of the pre-industrial world, ancient Rome, still there, still there to be visited to this day. It's wonderful ports of Ostia that held grain from all over the empire, fed by 2,000 ships a year. A phenomenal, wonderful landmark achievement in human history. Falls to pieces in the 5th century AD. What are the lessons from ancient Rome for us today? Well, funnily enough, Mocha is saying that we shouldn't be as worried as perhaps we might be by some of the trends we see in the world towards fragmentation, towards things falling to pieces. If those things can be managed without war, without conflict, then actually they might be setting up some of the conditions for growth. Because he says big unitary empires, big unitary bodies with zero competition internally are not what causes the intellectual ferment and the cultural conditions for growth. So if you buy that argument, then some of the trends we see around the world today might not look so gloomy. I'm Adrian Monk. This has been On Our Radar. See you next week.